Amen. Beautiful job. Thank you for sharing your gift. If you have your Bible, please go ahead and open to the book of Luke, chapter 16. And let me also say congratulations to our graduates. We are uh, so proud of you. We really are. I was, I was thinking this week, and I guess Brittany and I were thinking, uh, I remember when this group moved up to the youth ministry. Some of, of these were here at that time. And uh, one memory I have, I just have to share with you, because I will never forget it. I don't know where Caleb is. Is Caleb still in here? Or, okay, good. Yes, right here front center. I remember we were taking a trip to Beaver's Bend over spring break. And so we would take this annual trip and hike and canoe and just uh, discipleship. And on one particular occasion, we allowed Caleb's mama to be a, a leader and a chaperone on the trip. And so Caleb was 12, 13 years old, and there's, there's all these older uh, students on the bus. I mean, they're, they're 17, they're 18, they're mature, and Caleb wants to be like these older ones. And so he gets on the bus, and he's walking to the back, and all of a sudden his mama stands up, and in a loud voice she says, Caleb, did you remember to go potty? <clears throat> and everybody started laughing, and Caleb turned bright red, and it's just one of those, oh, I will never forget it. It was, Renee, thank you. It was a good, good memory. Um, but I, I tell you, for me, it, these, they should still be like 12 and 13. You know how sometimes there's an age, and it's like they ought to stay that age? I cannot believe you graduates have grown to the point that you are. I want you to know that we are, we are so proud of you. We are looking for you to go out into the world and to make an impact and just to do incredible things, incredible things, to change the world for the kingdom of God. And I was thinking this week about all that y'all will be told. You'll be in uh, graduation speeches and people will do their best to impart wisdom upon you and good wisdom, but, but much of it will focus on material success or upon worldly wealth. And now understand, there is nothing inherently wrong with success or with money or with wealth. But what I want you to know is this. Number one, stay close to God. Because I believe this. I believe that in the next few years of your life, you will make decisions that will follow you for the rest of your life. You will make decisions concerning an education and concerning a career and a job. You'll make decisions concerning the person you're going to spend the rest of your life with. And if you choose right, you'll live a life of victory. But if you choose wrong, you'll live a life of defeat. And so if there's any time in a person's life that they need to follow closely to God, it is during this time. This time where you graduate and you begin to uh, go out into the world <clears throat> and make decisions for yourself. But I want to challenge you with one more thing this morning. And that is to live your life under the conviction that this life is not all that there is. To live your life under the conviction and under the reality that there is more to come. And that is found in Hebrews 9.27. The Bible says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You see, the Bible says it is appointed. That means it is unavoidable. It means it is inevitable. It means it is certain. It is destined that every one of us is going to die. 
There is an appointment in our life that we will be unable to avoid. And, and now some of you, you are late everywhere that you go, right? You're late to school, you're late to work, you're late to church. And I'm not judging, I'm just saying I see that. But there's coming an appointment in your life that you will show up right on time to. An appointment that is the great equalizer and an appointment that sets us all on the same level. And we get a glimpse of that in Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. If you've heard the scripture preached, you will know that it is a scripture of contrast and reversals. It is a, a passage of contrast and reversal. For example, there's a, a poor man who becomes rich, and there's a rich man who becomes poor. There's a poor man who has great need and a rich man who has no need, and then it swaps, and there's a rich man who has great need and a poor man who has no needs. There's a poor man on the outside and a rich man on the inside until it changes, and then there's a poor man on the inside and a rich man on the outside. There's a poor man who seeks help but doesn't get any, and a rich man who needs no help, and then it swaps and there's a rich man who seeks help and a poor man who is unable to give any. There's a rich man who has all he could imagine and then it swaps. And there's a poor man who has all he could ever want. And so the passage in front of us, many believe it is a parable. It does not come out and say it is a parable. It is a testimony of the afterlife. It is, in my opinion, a firsthand testimony of the afterlife. Um, it is a testimony of Hades. It is a testimony of hell. Now, let me just say from the very beginning, before we dive into the text, we can get technical and we can talk about the differences between Sheol and Hades and Gehenna and hell. To be simple this morning, I'm going to put those all under the same in the New Testament context. Okay, your translation might say Hades, the NIV talks about the rich man is in hell. I'm going to just bring it all on the same level and talk about the rich man being in hell, okay? We can discuss that and debate that later, but let's set that stage as we move on to it, okay? So we're going to look at three contrasts, the contrast in life, the contrast in death, and the contrast in life after death. So let's look at verse 19. The text says there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Notice the man is marked by his wealth. He has built his life around the goods that he has and his money is what drives him. His money is what motivates him in life. His money is where he finds his purpose, and his money is where he finds his meaning. And the regular habit of this man is to dress to the max, to put himself on display for the world to see. You'll notice the Bible says that he is dressed in purple. And this time, purple was the color of royalty. The dyes needed for purple clothing were very expensive. And so royalty would wear purple. Common folks would not. And so the Bible says this man was wearing purple all the time. And then it says he was dressed in fine linen. Now, fine linen is not referring to his outer garments. It's referring 
referring to his inner garments. It's referring to his underwear. In other words, it's saying everything this man put on his body was the best. When you saw him come into church, you said, wow, he is looking sharp. When you saw him in town, you said, man, that guy has got it going on. He looks good. And then the text continues, and it tells us that he feasted sumptuously every day. It means he's eating good. Uh, for me, I, I love a good steak, but steak is expensive, so we don't eat it much at our house. But this man is eating the best steak every day of the week. He has reached the point in his life where if there's something that he wants, he gets it. His life is luxurious. It is lavish. It is flamboyant. And he is getting everything that he wants in life. And the Pharisees are listening to this story as Jesus teaches. And they are saying, blessed, blessed, blessed. Blessed is that man. Because you see, they invented the prosperity gospel. And they believed that if someone was rich, it was because God blessed them to be rich. And if someone was poor, it was because God cursed them to be poor. And so they are saying, this man is blessed by God. This is the man that we want to be. This is the man that we want a relationship with in life. And students, this is the man that the graduation speeches are going to say that you need to become. This is the man who has reached the American dream. This is the man that in this room, many are striving to be in life. We want to do well. We want to work hard so that we can reach this point and we can relax in life, and we can live a life of ease. And so the Bible starts and shows us a rich man, but in verse 20, it shows us a poor man. It says, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. The rich man was in extreme wealth, and the poor man is in the same level of extreme poverty. Greek word is the word takos, Kind of like taco, but it means that he had absolutely nothing. He was the most extreme level of poverty that you can imagine. And not only is he poor, but the Bible says that he is covered in sores. He's got these ulcers or these lesions, these oozing lesions all over his body. You would look at him and you would say he is gross and you want to get away from him as quickly as you could but not only is he poor and not only does he have these lesions on his body but he must have some disability because the bible tells us that someone cast him off at the rich man's gate he was dumped at the gate of the rich man he's dumped there in order to beg to try to receive some type of food for his body but does the rich man help him no. You say, well, does the rich man know he's there? Of course he does, because every time he goes out his home, he sees the poor man. He says, well, does the rich man know that he has needs? Of course he does. Every time the rich man leaves his home, he sees the poor man's body, and he sees his flesh, and he sees that he is hungry, but he gives him no assistance. There is a contrast, an extreme contrast, between the rich man and the poor man, Lazarus. Look at verse 21. It says, The poor man desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table, 
Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And so as the poor man sits outside the rich man's gate, he longs to have the table scraps. Here's what they would do in this culture. They would, they would eat their meal, and when they were done, instead of washing their hands, they would take some bread from the table, and they would rub that bread between their hands, and that was the way they cleaned their hands. And so the, that food, that bread would fall under the table, and the dogs would come, and they would eat that food. And so the poor man is longing, if I could just have a little bit of bread off of the table, I am so hungry, that is what I need, but he doesn't get any. And then the Bible says the dogs would come and they would, they would lick his flesh. They would eat at those open wounds upon his body. The poor man is a picture of great humiliation. He is roadkill in the world in which the rich man lives. And you may be in here, and I may be in here today, and we may be on one of those two extremes. You may be here today, and life might be easy for you. Life may be easy. You may have had so many blessings in your life that you're able to relax. You're able to take it easy. Or you may be in here this morning, and if you're honest, you say, man, life is tough. Life is tough for me. My family, we struggle we struggle paying the bills. We struggle getting by, and life is difficult. Here's one of the key elements of the text. This life is not the end. We must realize that this life, no matter how great it is for us or no matter how difficult it is for us, this life is not the end because an event changes in both of these men's life. Two men, they are as opposite as two men can possibly be, but there is an appointment on the horizon for each of them. Neither one saw it coming. Neither one knew the day, but there was an event that set them on the same plane. Does not matter if you are rich or poor. Does not matter if you're highly educated, highly uneducated. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of friends or if you have no friends. It does not matter what you do. It does not matter where you live. It does not matter who you are. There is an appointment coming your way and it is coming my way. James tells us that our life is just a mist. It's here one moment. And it's gone the next. Job tells us that our days are numbered. Your days of your life are numbered. My days are numbered. According to the life expectancy, we live an average of 28,470 days. Just picture a stack of paper, 28,470 sheets high. Now some of us, our stack may be getting smaller. Some of us have a, a large stack in front of us. Every day we live is one day closer to eternity. Today we are closer to eternity than we were yesterday. Death is on our horizon. Every year 55 million people die. 150,000 people die every day. 105 people die every minute. And almost two people die every second. You say, Case, we realize this. We know that we are going to die. But see, a lot of us live like that's not the case. 
A lot of us, we live our life and we're so focused on what's right here in front of us that we are oblivious to eternity. And so if I can just remind you of the fact that you're going to die, then I'm going to consider this message a success. To realize that there's more than this life that we are living. We don't even talk about death. We talk about passing away. We talk about breathing our last. But to realize that, that death is coming our way and the way that we live this life is going to determine the next. And so look at verse 22. It says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side and the rich man also died and was buried. Notice the poor man, nothing is said of a funeral for this man. There's nothing that's mentioned of a burial. In this day, they would have a, a valley, and in that valley, they would have a trash dump. They called it Gehenna, and it would be an ever-burning trash dump. And so what would happen to this man is the city cleaners would take his body, and they would throw it into the burning trash dump. He was nobody, he was worthless, and so no service would be given. But you'll notice the rich man died, and the Bible says he was buried in other words, people came together and they said nice things about this man. He was valuable. He was worth the time. And so people came together and they began to show their respect to this man. Not only is there a contrast in their life, but there's a, also a contrast in the way that they die. But now I want you to see the contrast in life after death. Verse 23. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. The rich man is in Hades, he's in torment, he's in this anguish, and he looks up and he sees Lazarus, and Lazarus is with Abraham. He's in the bosom of Abraham. Abraham is holding him. Now the religious knew that Abraham was the father of the faith. And so this is a huge shock that this pitiful poor man is with Abraham and the rich man is in Hades. How can such a poor, wretched man become the guest of honor in heaven? Notice they both know where they are. We're not talking about so sleep. They both are aware of their environment. The rich man is in Hades. I believe that in the New Testament, when Hades is mentioned, it is mentioned as the dwelling place of the damned. I see it as synonymous with hell. There's no waiting place. He is immediately there and lifting up his eyes, he looks up and sees Abraham. The Bible says he is in torment. The word is in the plural tense in the original language. It means that the torment is active and it is all around him. And he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. He requested from Abraham that in which he was never willing to give. And listen to what he says. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. He still sees Lazarus as beneath him. Do you catch that? 
Send my servant. Send Lazarus to me. I have a need, and Lazarus is not as good as I am, so send him to meet my need. I believe it reminds us that hell is not remedial. It does not fix an individual. It is simply punishment. There is no repentance in hell. There is no seeking forgiveness. It does not fix the individual. It just confirms their lostness. But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice something about hell. And I, I just want to be true to the text. I'm not trying to scare anyone, but I want to be true to the Bible. And I want you to understand that hell is a place of physical torment. Hell is a place of physical torment. You understand what he asked for? He does not say, would you send a bucket of water? Did you catch that? He does not say, would you send a hose of water? He's in this anguish, and the one thing that he wants more than anything, his one request is if I could just have one drop of water. If I could have one tiny drop off the end of a finger, if I could have one drop of water, it would make all the difference for me. There's this, this physical torment to where he is seeking just one tiny drop of water. Anguish, it means to be in great pain. And Jesus described hell like this. He said it is darkness. It is brimstone. It is fire. It is weeping. It is wailing. It is the gnashing of teeth. Hell is a place of physical torment. And if we could just understand that, oh, if I could just, if we could get one second image of hell in our mind, it would change our life forever. One second of it. In this room, I wonder how many of us shared our faith this week. If we got an image of hell, it would change that. So I just need one drop, just one tiny drop of water. Weeping, gnashing of teeth. And somebody's asking this question. You say, well, I, if it's such a terrible place, why does God send someone to hell? And then there's this question before us that hell is awful. The Bible makes it clear that hell is awful. Why would God send someone to hell? And so I want to propose to you this morning that God sends no one to hell. Do you remember the most well-known scripture in the Bible? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. God sent his son. He did all the work. He paid the ultimate price so that you will avoid this place called hell. God did everything and it was costly so that you and those around you will never experience the realities of hell. Second uh, Peter 3, 9, it says, But God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The will of God is that every one of us in here would find salvation through the shed blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it's not just empty words, and it's not easy talk. He did all the work, and he prepared the way so that all we must do is believe upon him in faith so that we can find salvation. 
And so it is a, a false statement to ever believe that God sends folks to hell. This is a story about God bringing redemption to humanity because he loves us so very much. But it does not delete the fact that hell is a place of physical torment. Now look back at verse 25. But Abraham said, child... There's still love here. Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. So many blessings have been lavished upon you in your life. You had so much. Now listen, not only is hell a place of physical torment, I believe from this verse that hell is a place of mental torment. If you have a pen and you mark in your Bible, I would circle the word remember. He says, remember in your life. Remember in your life, you received so many good things. Remember in your life that God poured out the blessings upon you. Remember in your life all that the Lord has done for you. Do you remember when DVR came out? DVR, TiVo. Before that, we had those, those VHS tapes and if you wanted to record something, you had to go to the VCR, put the tape in, set the timer, and it still didn't work very well. But now we have DVR, we have TiVo, we have Netflix and Hulu. And so if we want to go back and watch something, we simply just push the button. And we're able to go back and watch it. I'm convinced that in hell, there will be much remembrance and it could be that there's the remembrance of a time when a preacher got up and he preached a plain message of the reality of heaven and the reality of hell. And on that day, you felt the Holy Spirit was drawing you to salvation. You can't explain it. You cannot put it into words. But the Holy Spirit was drawing your hearts and you knew, I need to be saved and the Holy Spirit kept drawing your heart and kept pulling you harder and harder. And your, your heart was beating almost out of your chest. And the time came for the invitation. And you, you stand and you hold the back of the pew. And you hold on with all your might. And your heart is still fluttering and you still feel the calling of the Holy Spirit. But you, you don't move, you, you stand there. And the service comes to an end, and then you walk out the room the same way that you came into it. And it could be that there will be a time for some in hell, and they will remember that. They will remember the opportunities that God laid out upon them. They will remember the message that was spoken. They will remember the scriptures that were read. They will remember the goodness of God and how God poured out his blessings so lavishly upon your life. And so that is a place of mental torment. It says, you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner received bad things but now he is comforted here and yet you are in anguish what Lazarus was temporarily you are now permanently now look at verse 26 another important point and besides all of this between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed 
in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So hell is a place of physical torment. It is a place of mental torment. But thirdly, you've got to understand hell is a place of spiritual torment. It is a place where there is a chasm that has fixed and it is eternal. It will never change. Everything that we know of in life has a starting point and an ending point. Everything that we know, it is so hard for us to grasp what eternity is. We just cannot wrap our minds around it. What does it mean that something is eternal? And how awful it would be in this spiritual torment to know that you will be separated from God, from all that is good forever and ever and ever. There's a world that's trying to teach universalism. Universalism that says in the end it's all going to work out and we're all going to be with God. Sounds good, but the problem is it's not biblical. It is not biblical. The Bible teaches about heaven and it teaches about hell and it teaches that it is only through the blood of Jesus that we are saved. And so there is this reality, this spiritual torment of separation for all of eternity. Now look at verse 27. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. He realizes that his situation, his fate is fixed. And so now he begins to think of his loved ones. And he says, I have five brothers. They're living the same way that I lived. They cannot come to this awful place. And I believe the strongest people that want to see the witness are those who find themselves in hell. This man is turning into the evangelist. He says we must keep people from this awful place. But Abraham said they have Moses. They have the prophets. Let them hear them. Says they have Moses, they have the word, they have the, the truth of God. But look at verse 30. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Send Lazarus. Again, he's calling on Lazarus. Look, the word of God is not enough. Now, take a break just a minute. In the modern church, that is a belief that many have. The word is not enough. And so churches are getting away from this time, this time where we open up the Word of God and we expound on the truth of God. The most important thing that we do is to learn and to understand from this Word. But there are many churches today who this is the back seat. It's second nature because the Word is not enough. We need something different. We need to bring in a new program or a new event or a new activity. And so our world is getting further and further from the, the things of God, the Word of God. And so this man says, no, the Word is not enough. Send Lazarus from the dead. If my brothers see this man who was dead and now he's alive, they will believe. You've got to do more than the Word. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses the prophet, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. He said, they still won't believe. And you know what's interesting? What is the name of the poor man? Lazarus. There is another Lazarus in the Bible, isn't there? And what happens to that man? 
He rises from the dead, John chapter 11. And do you know what happens in John chapter 11? There are some who believe, but there are also some who see the miracle of Jesus and they run to the religious leaders and because of this miracle, they seek to have Jesus killed. A man named Lazarus did rise from the dead. They still don't believe and now they are sparked even greater to see Jesus destroyed. And so he says, no, the word is enough. The word of God is enough. I remind you of Romans 10. It says, how then will they call on him of whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Talking about the power of the word of God. Now we're closing up. Here's what you've got to understand. Hebrews 9, 27 And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The word once, you know what it means? It means that there's there's not a a do-over. There's not a second chance. We have this contrast of a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man does very well in life, but he is miserable in death. And we were teaching our young people, and our culture says this, live for the here and the now. Live for what is right in front of you. But the Bible says, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The life that we live now and the decision that we make now determines our eternity. And there will be no do-over. This is our life, our one life to live. I don't know how much longer your stack is, but we're getting closer and closer every day. And it breaks my heart, as, as one of your shepherds, it breaks my heart that there could be some in this room who one day will stand before God and hear the words, Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, for I never knew you. One life, one chance. It reminds me, my boys are big into baseball. Y'all know that. And so every day we're hitting balls. Every day we're playing catch. And we've got this game. I may have shared it with you before, but we'll get in a big triangle, and we'll start playing catch. And so we'll count it off when you catch one, and then Mason will throw to Maddox, two, throw to me, three, and we'll see how far we can get. And every time we catch the ball, we take a step back. And so we get up to 40, 50, and we're to the point that just throwing as hard as we can, as high as we can, 51, 52, 53, and it's just so far now, I'm throwing it, oh, and the ball comes, and Mattis gets under it, and he, he goes under it, and he tries to catch it, but the ball bounces off of his glove, and it hits the ground. And he, he falls to his knees, and he picks the ball up, and he says, oh, daddy, I dropped it. I said, I, I know, baby. He said, Daddy, can we, can we just pretend it didn't happen? Daddy, can I, can I have a do-over? Let's just keep on going. Dad, Daddy, I need just a do-over. Let's keep on going. We're about to break our previous record. Let's keep on going. And there's going to be a day for some that there's going to be a longing for a do-over. Can I just have a do-over? I, I messed up. I blew it. I lived for this life, and I forgot about the life to come. Can I just have a do-over? 
Can I just have another shot? Can I just have another chance? And I'm here today to tell you this is your life. Live it well. This is your life. Follow the Lord's calling today. If you're here and you know that you're not saved. And in this moment, the Holy Spirit of God is, you can't even explain it, but you feel it in your heart. You feel the Holy Spirit drawing you to salvation. Please don't put it off. Please don't put it off. There is a, this text has been on my heart this entire week. I had three other things I wanted to preach today, but the Lord kept saying, this is it, this is it, this is it. And there's a reason for it. Let me ask you to close your eyes and bow your head. I'm not going to put you on the spot. And I'm just going to ask you, if the Holy Spirit is drawing you to salvation, when we start this invitation time, I'm going to ask you to come meet me at the front. I'm going to get you lined up with an individual. They're going to talk to you. We're going to make sure you understand. And you can leave this place with assurance of your salvation. Most important decision. This is an important time in the life of some who could affect their entire eternity. You have one shot. You have one life. And for the rest, those of us here who we know that we're saved... Praise God for that. Hallelujah for that. My question is when you think about the realities of hell and you think about the blessed gift of salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ, who are you sharing with? Every one of us, we know people who are lost. We have lost family members. We have lost co-workers. We have lost friends. And if they were to die, they would spend eternity separated from God. And so what we need is we need some folks who will, who will pray for these people. Altar ought to be, be full, just crying out, God, not my family, not my friends, not the people who I love. God, would you work in their life? Would you use me to share the truth? What a shame it is when we don't care about the souls of others. And so there, there's the invitation this morning. If you need to be saved and the Holy Spirit is leading you, today's the day. If you know that you're saved and you're not sharing that good news with others, the time has come. We don't know how much more time that we have. Allow the Lord to use you. God, we thank you for this time, Lord. Thank you for your word, how clear it is and how it speaks to our hearts. Lord, I pray for the, the ones here who, who don't have a relationship with you. God, I pray that you'll give them the strength to follow. God, the strength to be obedient. Lord, if you're calling some to salvation, I pray today is the day. Lord, I pray for the, the rest of us, God, who have just become lackadaisical and we don't care about the souls of people, that you will ignite a passion, God, and we will wake up on mission to live for you. So, Lord, let your will be done during the remainder of this service, during this invitation. We ask this in your name. Amen. Stand with